Turning points change the course of our lives, whether it's a big decision, overcoming an obstacle or tragedy, or taking a leap of faith. These stories of inspiration and resilience are what Turning Point is all about. Hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of Turning Point. I'm your host Priya Sam and this week we have Dr. Nahid Dasani with us to talk about his Turning Point story. Nahid is a palliative care physician and a health justice activist. He is also the founder of PEACH. That stands for Palliative Education and Care for the Homeless. It is a service that supports homeless and vulnerably housed patients with life-limiting illnesses. We're going to talk more about Peach and how it came to be in just a few moments. Welcome to Turning Point, Nahid. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me on, Priya. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Oh, it's so great to have you. And, you know, before we get to your turning point story, uh, we have heard so much about the toll this pandemic is taking on healthcare workers like yourself. So how are you doing? Uh, well, thank you for asking. It's not often that people ask. And my new kind of baseline answer is I'm pandemic fine. I guess it's just like a, a better baseline than, you know, how are you? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, given, you know, the various roles that many, many health workers have been taking on, people are working, you know, longer hours, more shifts, people are, are just doing more and dealing with much more than they ever did before. Um, I'm, I'm working in street-based outreach, providing palliative care for people experiencing homelessness which I know we'll talk about, but I'm also the medical director for the Region of Appeals COVID-19 Isolation and Housing Program. And so that's put me at the forefront of this pandemic um, and has uh, allowed me to see the ways that this pandemic has disproportionately impacted uh, different communities. Um, my colleagues across Canada are dealing with a lot of, um, a lot of distress, moral fatigue, um, compassion fatigue, um, and um, even grief. And so it's been a trying time for health workers everywhere. Can you tell us from your from your firsthand experience, you know, I know we hear a lot about how this pandemic is disproportionately affecting our vulnerable populations, but what are you seeing there on the front lines? You know, um, I, I'm seeing the fact that this um, virus is not an equal opportunity virus uh, by any means. I'm seeing and have seen the ways that we may have all weathered the same storm, but we have not been in the same boat. Um, actually, some of us have been in yachts thriving while all the rest of us have been in life rafts barely surviving. From you know racialized populations to essential workers, to people experiencing homelessness, to people with disabilities and elders and seniors in our communities, this virus hit these populations especially hard. And one has to wonder that in the first wave, maybe we, there was an argument that we didn't know um, and we didn't have those learned lessons. But when the second wave hit, it wasn't really fair um, to say that the same thing. That said, um, I've seen an incredible resilience um, among you know our seniors, um, from essential workers, uh, from, from many of the populations that I'm talking about today to, to kind of um, roll with um, the punches and to, you know, show real strength during this time. I think it's shown a lot of lessons about how we can better support vulnerable populations in the future, including, you know, you know, um, upstream social policies around housing, around basic income, um, and um, how we can improve our long term care system, for example, um, to better support, you know, frail seniors in the future. 
You know, all of these um, all of these topics and areas that you're bringing up here and your focus on these vulnerable populations during COVID-19, it really um, ties into a lot of the work that you have been doing throughout your whole career, really. And of course, this pandemic, it sounds like is is really adding another layer of that and bringing a lot of this to the forefront. Um, but let's go back to, to where this all started. Uh, it was about 10 years ago during your residency um, when this big turning point really led you to the work uh, that you do right now. So so take me back to 2011 and, and tell me what happened. Well, thank you so much for asking. And um, it's one of the reasons I really love um, the way your your podcast works, because it sometimes life does come down to a few key moments or a turning point. Um, and so um, for me, I was working as a resident trainee at the University of Toronto, um, um, working at a local men's shelter, providing health care for people experiencing homelessness. And a man showed up at the door. He was in crisis. He was in pain. He was writhing. He was shaking. Um, and it was because when I looked in his mouth, he had this tongue cancer that had spread throughout his face and head and neck. And um, as I began to know him and read through his medical chart, I started to realize that he was diagnosed one year before in a local cancer, cancer center, but due to his mental health, he had a longstanding diagnosis of schizophrenia. He, he was not able to organize himself to go back uh, for a follow-up and treatment of his cancer. Um, as time went on, he started to experience pain. So he did what any one of us would do. He went hospital to hospital, ER to ER, walk-in to walk-in, seeking the kind of pain control that any person should have access to. Um, I saw the notes um, when he when when he would visit these these um, uh, emergency departments and hospitals, and I could see that he was seen and then denied access to pain medicines. Maybe it was the way he looked, maybe it was the way he smelled, maybe it was what he said, maybe it was what he didn't say. But um, I felt that there was some sort of judgment um, happening on, uh, the, uh, about him when he was in these settings. Um, so he presented in in our shelter that day in pain crisis, and and, and he was in our care. Um, I tried to build a connection. He promised me he would take some pain medicines and we'd go back to the cancer hospital to even work to get some radiation to shrink the tumor that was now so big. And um, he promised me he would do that. I got to the shelter the next day. I couldn't find him anywhere um, in the morning. I actually showed up early because I was so excited to get, get going with him. And um, I couldn't find him in the hallway or the cafeteria or anywhere. And um, a friend from down the hall, one of his friends said, hey, doc, are you looking for Terry? And Terry was his name. And, he said, and I said, yeah. And he said, oh, you didn't hear? Terry died last night. Terry's body was found in the early hours of the morning by a commuter on her way to work. It was too little too late. He had overdosed a combination of alcohol and street drugs. This was a very traumatic event for me. Um, um, I mean, don't get me wrong, medical trainees are often um, encountering death um, in our training, but this was different. This was a person who had fallen through the cracks uh, again and again and again in a, in a city that has world-class cancer care and world-class palliative care. Um, which opened my eyes to the lack of access around palliative care for people who experience vulnerabilities in our communities. And I guess you could say the rest is history after that. You tell this story as if it was yesterday. I can tell, you know, how deeply it impacted you, all of the details that you remember um, about Terry. And um, for you, you, um, I believe, took some time off after this to reflect and, and do a lot of research. And, and what did you find out during that time? Yeah, you know, um, uh, I, 
given the the traumatic nature of the event and the way that it was hitting me, I was dealing with a lot of grief at the time, not just because I lost a, a person I cared for, but because I was living in a society that allowed this to happen. And um, in the time that I took uh, away, um, uh, I learned I learned some things. Um, um, I learned that people experiencing homelessness are 28 times more likely to have hepatitis C, five times more likely to have heart disease, four times more likely to have cancer. I learned that the average life expectancy for people who are housed in this country is 77 to 82 years old, but people who are homeless or experience homelessness, their life expectancy is 34 to 47 years old. I learned that people experiencing homelessness die at a rate that's 2.3 to four times higher than the average Canadian baseline population. Basically, people who don't have a home or live in the streets and in shelters, their life expectancy is half as compared to you and I, Priya. And so I started to realize that homelessness was a terminal diagnosis of the social factors that make us sick, the social determinants of health. And so I worked um, with colleagues at the Inner City Health Associates in downtown Toronto to inspire a new way of thinking, a new model of care. And we launched, um, you know, in, in, in 2014, the world's first mobile palliative care program that focuses on providing healthcare and palliative care um, for people experiencing homelessness with serious life-limiting disease uh, so that no person falls through the cracks, whether they, whether they live in a shelter, supportive housing, a rooming house, or under a bridge, um, so that people who are living and dying on the streets have supports and care, no matter what their goals and, and what their wishes are. Wow. I mean, this is such a testament to how deeply the Terry story really affected you because uh, you not only did you, you know, finish, obviously you finished your residency and went on to be a physician. But during this time, I mean, I, th I think we've all heard stories from people about how grueling residency is. Um, but during those next few years, you also managed to found this organization um, that is thriving now. And other cities across uh, the country and around the world have also modeled programs after Peach. Yeah, you know, it's it's wild to think about it, but when you reflect on that turning point, you know, um, it was just, it hit on so many levels that it inspired me to even alter the direction of my further medical training. I'd always envisioned, you know, um, you know, doing other specialties, maybe like emergency medicine or, or, or even more like a public health focus. But um, after that, I was exposed to palliative care and the ways that um, um, inequities exist in the ways people are dying in our communities. And if we can't get that part right in our society like what's the point of all this right so access to palliative care is a human right access to housing is a human right so there's an overlay of, of injustices that made sense and that inspired the, the the creation of this program called peach palliative education and care for the homeless which has now evolved into a mobile street and shelter based palliative care program that cares for any time at any time between 110 and 120 clients on our caseload we're 24 7 model um, we, we feature a team of, of health navigators nursing coordinators home care coordinators and staff um, physicians and psychiatrists um, to really support the needs of people. And we're now part of a national and even international family of, of programs that have developed in Victoria, British Columbia, Edmonton, Calgary, um, um, uh, in, in Seattle, and even Brisbane, Australia. So it's it's been really um, neat to kind of be part of this uh, new kind of like way of thinking about how we deliver care. And But to me, Priya, it really boils down to one thing. It boils down to it you know, meeting people where they're at. That's that's really what it is, right? It's it's that trauma-informed care. And um, yeah, that's kind of, you know, what it is in a nutshell. 
Yeah, and between your work um, uh, with Peach and also your work um, as a physician, as a palliative care physician in a more traditional setting, um, what do you see as as differences um, in the way people react when they're when you kind of meet them where they're at, as you say? Um, I think sometimes um, uh, people may be surprised about how. Um, um, people uh, react when we offer them care through the PEACH program. You have to remember that the kinds of people we care for are people who've often faced trauma disc and discrimination within healthcare institutions, within government institutions, and in our community in general. Just think about the stigma that exists around people experiencing homelessness. There's a deep-seated fear, and I think sometimes a deep-seated hatred in a country like Canada for people experiencing homelessness, as sad as that sounds. That's why conversations like this are important because we need to destigmatize and deconstruct de 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 um, um, the, the, the myths that exist around people experiencing homelessness. For the record, I've never met a person who wanted to be on the streets or in shelters. People are in these situations due to a complex you know, set of circumstances. Um, that are created around due to the structural arrangements around them, due to a weakening social safety net, due to you know a, a lack of supports around social assistance, housing, medical care, um, from from you know federal, you know municipal, regional, provincial politics. It all kind of connects in many ways. Um, so many of the people we care for actually are shocked. They think there's like a catch. They even think it's a scam sometimes. Like what? You're just going to come check on how I feel, my quality of life. Nobody's like even checked on me for like two decades. Like you're going to spend more than 10 minutes with me because we typically spend, you know, a, a quite a bit of time with people. Um, you know, we see people over and over. We go to wherever they are. They've never interacted with a health model like that. And so they're, they're just blown away usually. And even we're shoot away a couple of times because um, it's happened because people just don't believe it, right? Like, but we, we come back with respect and we offer opportunity and then people are like, oh, this is real. Um, so that's actually the reaction we usually get, surprise. And that's sad to me that we've created a society where people are surprised when they get that kind of care when we meet them where they're at. Wow, this is, it's just such a powerful story and really um, opening my eyes and I'm sure the people who are watching and listening as well to, um, I think something that, that many of us have just never thought about, you know, we really take for granted um, how lucky most of us are to to be able to have access to, to these services that we've kind of come to to expect and and also to to have some sort of amount of trust um, in in the healthcare system, um, so you know thank you for the work that you're doing for for sharing all of this with us. Um, I also do follow you on Twitter and. I and I know a lot of other people really learn a lot from uh, from your posts. You share a lot of really valuable information, um, a lot about vulnerable populations like we've been talking about. Um, and you also talk a lot about racial injustices in our healthcare system. Was this something that you were aware of uh, before you yourself became a physician? Um, I think, you know, it's important to, you know, ground myself in the in the ways that I was kind of like brought up. Um, um, I'm the son of two refugees who came to Canada in the 1970s from, um, you know, from Uganda, a, a war-torn country, fleeing persecution. And so growing up as, um, as a child of two refugees who went through the immigrant experience, you know, poverty, social justice, and the social determinants of health were huge 
parts of of my upbringing and and definitely the consequences of you know racism and and um a, a firsthand understanding and experience in systemic racism um and since you know getting into medicine and healthcare it's been really hard for me to 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 ignore or look away from the fact that actually racism is very much present in healthcare and the product of systemic racism is something that is very real in our communities um and so you know as a physician i now have this privilege um, um, and I try to utilize this privilege where possible to um, push forward discussions um, around um, racism and the consequences of systemic racism in our communities. Um, it's, 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 it's a necessary kind of thing um, uh, for me and it's, it's part and parcel of the work. And I think you don't have to look any further than COVID-19 to see the impact of systemic racism in our communities. Um, you know, when the first wave happened, um, uh, you know, we were told by government officials and, uh, you know, many elected leaders, you don't need race-based data. You know, it's affecting us all equally. We pushed, we pushed, activists were pushing. Finally, we got the data and lo and behold, 83% of cases, um, COVID-19 cases were among racialized communities. Um, why did we have to fight for that data? Even to this day, nearly 70% of those hospitalized are racialized people in a city like Toronto. This is Toronto data, but this is actually true in cities across Canada. It's pretty much across the board. Um, that's just like around race-based data. I mean, I can go on and on about, you know, the, the, the examples of systemic racism in healthcare from police brutality, to you know um, the way we hire you know nurses and and PSWs in our home care system were often racialized women um, to the way we treat you know, particular disease states, particular patients, like people have sickle cell disease and the way we treat black patients dealing with that to the um, longstanding health disparities that exist around indigenous communities. It's through and through. We have a lot of work to do. It's, it's important. It's important work. We need to keep this going. And you've certainly been a big part of, of, of doing that, of highlighting some of these issues. Um, you are very vocal and, and clearly very passionate about your experiences uh, and your opinions. I do wonder, you know, how do your colleagues react to this? Like, has this ever caused you any issues at all, work-wise? You know, I think um, um, it's important to say that when when having these conversations, you, you need to be conscious of the fact that these are my opinions, you know, and, and when speaking with media, you know, I, I try to make it very clear. I'm not speaking for my employer. I'm not speaking for, um, the hospital I'm at or the community health organization I'm affiliated with. So, you know, I think, you know, you know, that's one piece of it, but I think by and large, um, believe it or not, um, community members have been, uh, health community members and, and my colleagues in hospital have been very supportive of the work. I think, um, I think one of the, one of the pieces that that's really important is um, being a health communicator. My role is to convert a topic like systemic racism and make it digestible and more understandable for people who work and 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 deliver healthcare to understand how it's relevant to them. So you know when it comes to, I mean, COVID nineteen is a health issue, so a lot that's it's it's really like translatable, and that's probably why we're talking about it a lot more. But like, why is police brutality a health health related issue? For example, you know, I mean, we see you know the impact disproportionate impact that policing has had on, you know, communities of color, black and brown communities in particular, um, you know, people who deal with, deal with mental health crises, for example. That's been, you know, a real project for me. I'm a co-founder of Doctors for Defunding Police. But also, 
encapsulating advocacy around other movements as well during COVID-19. Um, I, I helped co-found Doctors for Justice in Long-Term Care, uh, you know, to respond to the fact that we, we, we at one point during COVID had one person dying every hour in Ontario's long-term care homes. And there are many reasons for this, including, you know, the ways that for-profit long-term care has derived more deaths. Um, and this is like, totally something that's not been looked at by our governments appropriately, it needs to be, but also secondly, um, the fact that many racialized women work in long-term care and have precarious employment. So, um, you know, it's, it's a lot of like converting and once you convert it and kind of like, you know, translate it into a health-related message, colleagues, you know, um, are there um, and tend to support. There are trolls. There's lots of trolls actually. And there's COVID-19 has brought more trolls than ever before. I've received threats um, um, that have been very real. So it's been a journey for sure. Um, and it, I hope it's just the beginning of that journey because I'm not going to stop. <laughs> I, you know, I did wonder about that because I know, you know, anytime you are putting out information and like you said, there have uh, the amount of trolling does seem to have uh, increased over uh, over the course of this pandemic as well. Um, but you are obviously still, you know, holding holding strong and still very committed to your message. Has there ever been a situation, um, whether it's at work or with a troll, that has has made you hesitant to to post anything else or to share more information? You know, particularly when we had um, uh, the events of last summer on Black Lives Matter um, um, and the you know the George Floyd incident, and then when we founded co. Um, when we when we founded Doctors for Defunding Police, um, I was taking on white supremacy in Canada and white supremacy issues. Um, I started to get a lot more um, trolling and threats then. Um, uh, when um, I started to point out the inequities that existed around how police handled the Adamson barbecue incident in Toronto, um, a famous restaurateur in Toronto that defied public health guidelines and opened the restaurant anyway for indoor dining when he wasn't allowed to. Um, I got I got a lot of threats then too, believe it or not. Um, and um, actually, you know, I, I you know, yeah, like I, I I got I was I got threats, and um, you know, you start to make a decision at those points about, you know, what what you're saying and the impact it's having, and um, you know, I've I've gone I've had to you know go to the authorities from time to time, you know, about things. Nothing has ever come of that. And I, I find with these things, people tend to be anonymous. Um, they tend not to, you know, have their personal information. Um, but, you know, I've also started to realize that when it happens more, it also means you're striking a chord. It means your message is hitting. It means that the, it's it's resonating with the people that it needs to resonate with, and it's making people uncomfortable. Um, and um, it, it's, it's, it's a badge of honor. <laughs> is how I kind of describe it. Um, it's not a perfect world. It's unfortunate that people, racialized people who are standing up for health equity and equity in general in our communities are, the, are, are, are getting, you know, targeted, but I'm not the only one. All of us have, you know, gotten threatened. Even just for standing up for science and evidence-based public health guidelines has made you a target. Um, can you imagine if you're taking on white supremacy and racism at the same time? So like, it's just to put it in perspective, right? <laughs> Yes. And in a future episode, I want to ask you if you ever sleep, because I don't know how you do it all. <laughs> you know, thank you. I actually do sleep. I sleep quite a bit and I, I binge watch a lot of like streaming television shows. And um, I'm a huge fan of like 
seri different series and different shows. And I'm binge watching um, For All Mankind on Apple TV right now. It's so good. And so, yeah, believe it or not. Yeah, totally. So somehow <laughs> you, you do manage uh, to do it all. I'm, <laughs> I'm impressed. Okay, and I need to watch that show. I've heard a few people say it's that it's so really good. good. <laughs> Um, you mentioned there, um, you mentioned doctors for defunding the police. And I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about this because um, you, um, as you said, are one of the founding members, but you actually have hundreds of doctors who, who, are, who are on board and who have, um, who have signed a, a petition of support for, uh, for your mission. Um, so what led you to kind of start this initiative? And I, I guess what are some of the main things that, that this particular group is focused on, on seeing change? For sure. I think at the outset, the Doctors for Defunding Police um, uh, movement is about recognizing that policing is a public health crisis uh, for our, our communities and particularly hardest hit communities, including racialized um, uh, uh, areas and neighborhoods. Um, it, it We now have over, I believe it's over 600 signatures. So it was a campaign that started with like 55, you know, doctors, academics, researchers signing it. And then it, it, it kind of like totally grew. Um, and it really um, uh, asks the question of starting to look at policing as a public health and community health issue. It looks at um, particular, um, uh, particularly the evidence, which indicates, you know, black people, you know, in a city like Toronto are 20 times more likely to be, you know, shot um, um, uh, by police um, than white counterparts, for example. We see, we see significantly um, uh, similar data um, in, in places in other cities across Canada around Indigenous communities as well. And so we are looking at um, 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 defunding the police, which sometimes people get their um, their backs up against the wall. Um, um, and, and there is some argument about like, Okay, like how much, like to what level, um, to zero and, you know, to 50 to percent to 25 percent. Like and so, you know, our, our request was upwards of 50, 50 percent was 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 what we were talking about. But we're not just talking about like it's not just defunding the police. It's then reallocating that funding into social services and community. And in many cities across Canada and actually across North America, um, we spend more on policing in these cities than we do on housing, on um, mental health, on addictions, on social supports, which doesn't make a lot of sense. And if we actually use that money to do this, we could actually do a lot better and support people. And we have seen, you know, um, um, excellent, op, uh, you know, a representation of the defunding the police movement across North America and around the world. And just recently, we saw progress in cities like Austin, Texas, and so, you know, and there's many more. You know, we can really encapsulate a healthier society where, you know, you know, Black and Indigenous people specifically are not targeted by police. And I'll, you asked me like, what got me into it? Because I was sick and tired of seeing. The people I care for, my patients, my clients, um, getting targeted by police, black and indigenous people dealing with mental health, dealing with poverty, dealing with homelessness, and being, you know, disproportionately targeted by policing. And I saw this with my own eyes. Um, and I, I, I resonated with the public health messaging around it, and, you know, decided we needed to do something. And this was our response, um, you know, around the George Floyd incident and around Black Lives Matter last year. And since um, since founding this um, this movement, have you seen any changes? Like, have has government or have any officials been been willing to talk about steps towards making some of these initiatives happen? 
we've seen, you know, um, cities across Canada start looking at this discussion. I've seen, you know, defunding, um, uh, you know, councillors put in motions to defund by 5%, 10%, you know, the 20%. And I think we're at the stage where people are talking about, you know, um, percentages. We have not seen a response that matches the demands in our letter. Um, um, we've we've also not seen um, really uh, broad sweeping um, examples of, of of the kind of defunding and reallocation of funds that we're hoping for um, uh, across Canada. And 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 it's and, and it's important to to kind of talk about this. And I'm glad we are because you know movements changed, you know, like, you know, that was very much a, we talked about that in a lot in 2020. And now we tend to be talking about different things. Um, so the Doctors for Defunding Police um, a movement is a movement to keep the movement going and keep the conversation going. Um, you know, racism and policing is still very present. Um, you know, we're just looking um, uh, today at the headlines, you know, you can see that the Ontario um, uh, police, the OPP, have been, um, you know, asked to leave a, a community in Ontario, um, and the First Nations chief there actually, you know, asked them to leave because the trust is broken. Can you imagine asking the police to leave because it's more harmful than helpful? I mean, this is like literally today's headlines. So, you know, there's so many things that are still happening, um, and we're just trying to keep the message going and, you know, support, um, uh, you know, various colleagues in different disciplines who are working, uh, you know, in anti-Black and anti-Indigenous racism and, and to improve policing and, and really transform um, policing as we know it. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting to hear about this ongoing work, as you say, because a, a lot of times when when there is a big event that that does get a lot of attention, you know, you um, you tend to see a, a lot of organizations responding and and uh, then we move on right to the, to the next thing that comes up um so yeah so it, it is really uh, it's just so interesting to hear about this ongoing work that uh, doctors for defunding the police is doing um and as you say it's not an issue that's gone away just because maybe we're talking more about vaccines or or, or whatever the issue of the day is at the moment um it's still it's still an ongoing uh, still an ongoing issue um I, I kind of want to take a step back um, to something you had mentioned earlier. You mentioned that you were, uh, or that you that you um, your parents were refugees. Um, how old were you when when they came here from uh, Uganda? Oh, I was. Or were born, you born? I here? was actually born. You here. were born yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, and did their experience um, at all influence your decision to want to enter medicine? You know, I think their experience. Um, um, and the struggles they experienced, you know, working multiple jobs, you know, you know, living in poverty at different times in, in their uh, in in their life, and then in my upbringing, inspired me to um, to to really rationalize an approach to life which was really based on social justice. Um, and and I didn't really know that that would happen through healthcare, but I knew that that wanted I needed I needed and wanted that to be a big part of, of what I did because I, I I felt that we could transform our communities to do better for people you know like myself who was born into a household like that, but many others as well. Um, as I went along the journey, I started to realize that through health there 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 was an opportunity to derive justice, health justice, and that actually this is work 
you know, had been going on for a long time. You know, you think about colleagues who, who have done excellent work, you know, for example, with like Doctors Without Borders, Medicine Sans Frontier, like just incredible work internationally, Oxfam. And, you know, I know so many colleagues who work in international and global health who have done great work. But then when Terry died from me and my residency, it, it showed me that, you know, I think it's really important that we do work internationally. I probably will do work like that in the future um, myself. But, but I realized that in our own backyards, there were huge inequities. Like you have, you know, people getting world-class healthcare in these like, you know, hospitals with like marble floors and the lobbies and just like beautiful. And then literally one block away, there's a shelter for people experiencing homelessness and the life expectancies are like, you know, 77 to 82 years old in this hospital and like less than 47 years old in this shelter. And that to me just doesn't make any sense. And I started to realize that, you know, the disease of housing, the social disease of a lack of a roof over your head actually is a health condition, a social health condition, and that we can improve it with income, with housing, with social supports, with emotional supports. And then when you top off the experiences with Terry around the lack of access to palliative care, you know, a specialty of healthcare, which aims to support people with serious life-limiting diseases around medical care, around quality of life, around emotional supports. Um, I, I couldn't help but go in that in that direction. So it was kind of like the turning point, what just kind of potentiated what my previous life experiences were. And it was just like, you know, um, like that, like, whoa, you know, just like mind-blowing. I always say to people like, Sometimes, you know, it's not like one turning point. It seems to have been for me, at least, at least for this life stage, but it can be a series of turning points. It can be the culmination of a series of events, which becomes a turning point. Like, you know what I mean? I think for different people, it's different things. Um, and that's just kind of how I rationalize it, um, at least right now. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. I mean, it's fascinating to hear about some of your childhood experiences too, because it does, it sounds exactly what you said there. It's like the seeds were kind of planted early. Uh, and then, you know, especially uh, Terry, what happened with Terry, it sounds like that really kind of, I guess, allowed some of those social justice interests and, and some of your passion there to, to really blossom and for you to find a way to, to channel it into, in, into an area where you could really make a difference and, and to also really be, um, you were really an innovator in this space of, of providing palliative care uh, to people experiencing homelessness, because I think you even mentioned uh, in our in our first call that you had gone looking for resources and um, and a program that maybe you could you could bring to Toronto and it just really didn't exist anywhere else. Yeah, and, I, and I'm forever grateful to the Inner City Health Associates who gave the program and the model a home, even when it uh, it didn't necessarily, you know, exist anywhere else. Um, you know, um, but also to colleagues who, you know, uh, um, you know, there were there were some spaces where I was turned away from, and some people who thought this wasn't necessary or resisted the concept because it was different from how healthcare was delivered otherwise. But there were many mentors, many colleagues in community care, in hospitals, in government, in health policy who, you know, gave it a chance. And I think sometimes um, um, the it's it's important to 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 give new ways of thinking a chance and. And and I was coming out of school, so it was you know it was it was even more challenging in that way. Um, um, but you know why I think it was ultimately successful is because when we when when we launched, um, we spent quite a bit of time before listening to the community, listening to first people with lived experiences of homelessness around what their palliative care journeys were. Many of these people are were dealing with you know illnesses themselves or had been caregivers, and so there was a, a lot of 
wisdom and a lot of wealth of experiences in that group. And that they that really shaped the way the program is delivered, how we, you know, describe palliative care to how we even, you know, staff our team to who's on the team to what the skill sets are. And I think you, you, you never go wrong when you go back to what it's all about. Like, there's a lot of distractions in life, funding, programming, um, you know, communications, public relations, but you always got to go back to what it's all about. And that's meeting people where they're at and serving the population you serve. And I always say to the team, whenever we're kind of like struggling, we got to go back to what it's all about. And if you do that, you'll never go wrong. Well, we are so lucky to have someone like you who persevered through um, through getting those no's along the way, you know, to, to really push forward to create this program, to find an organization that would get on board. Um, I know so many lives have been, have been improved because of the work that you're doing. Um, and I do actually want to put you on the spot a little bit here because um, as we kind of look back on your turning point, it's been, it's been 10 years now um, since, uh, since Terry passed away, uh, since you had this this life-changing event that led you to found peach what are you most proud of uh that you've accomplished in the last 10 years since that happened um thank you i'm i'm really i'm really okay with being put on the spot (laughs) um uh, especially when it comes to this because um there's a lot to be grateful for when you think about it and i know you know a lot of the conversation we've been talking about me and my experience and i'm honored but um more than anything what i'm you know grateful for 10 years later is um the community of support that this work has inspired um um, there wasn't a lot about a lot of discussion about palliative care for people who experienced inequities ten years ago. There was some, but it was it was very focused and very specialized um, in certain areas um, in healthcare. And now it's something that's being discussed broadly. Um, I'm grateful to colleagues at the University of Victoria, including Dr. Kelly Stavjahar and her team. There's a research team that looks at this like that's what they do they put out multiple papers and reports and i'm honored to write with them and, and be part of their work um i'm i'm inspired by colleagues like dr kara bablitz and dr simon colgan in in edmund and calgary and edmonton who've launched you know their mobile programs in their cities that support people experiencing homelessness and i'm so grateful to the to the to the team that we work with um uh, um here in toronto but, but mostly to the community of people with lived experience who um, continue to guide us and continue to, you know, um, you know, resonate with the work because this work has then inspired discussions about, well, how are we supporting people in hospital who deal with serious life-limiting disease? Should we create more beds for people experiencing homelessness so they have access to die? To, you know, are we doing home care in a, in an equitable and safe way to, you know, um, you know, harm reduction and supporting people who use drugs as they die, like they'd still deserve access to palliative care to, you know, how are we supporting communities with severe and persistent mental illness? And what I'm saying is this, this kind of area has spawned way beyond like a model of care, you know, a mobile palliative care program for people experiencing homelessness. It's now, it's a field of study. You know, there's a chapter in the palliative care textbook coming out um, later this year. And and that's not me. That's like this community of support. So I'm grateful for that one decade later. And it makes me think, where will this movement and where will this work be five years now from down, you know, down the road, 10 years down the road? Like, I, you know, it just gets me really excited and really um, enthusiastic about thinking about the future and the next generation of 
clinicians and, and, and nurses and doctors and health workers are so excited about the concept. Like, I'm not, like, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm cool. Like, you know, like, I'm just want to watch this just like evolve and it's going to be amazing to see. Oh, well, and just, just hearing and seeing your passion for, for the work that you do. I mean, uh, we are so grateful to you too for for the work that you do for the messages that you share on social media and for anyone listening and watching I really encourage you um, to follow Dr. Dasani on on Twitter um, and to listen to your TED talk I was so uh, inspired by um, obviously you told Terry's story and um, and you know really talked about the founding of uh, of Peach there as well so uh, thank you for sharing your time with us today for your ongoing work that you're doing on the front lines and and through your uh, health activism as well. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to having a conversation with you again down the road. Thank you so much. I really appreciate conversations like this. Um, and thank you for, for creating a platform to do that. I really appreciate it, Priya. Till we talk again. Yes, absolutely. And thank you to all of you for watching and listening. Uh, we hope you'll join us again for our next episode of Turning Point. And until then, take good care of yourselves and of each other.